Hello everyone, I'm Kathleen Pelly. Welcome to the special omnibus edition of Journey with Story, where you can listen to all of this month's episodes one after the other. And just so you know, there will be no special intro for the individual stories, no added details and no shout-outs. If you want to hear all of those, then you'll need to listen to the individual episodes and not this version. Got it? Oh, mums, dads, grown-ups, you can download some free colouring sheets at our website, www.journeywithstory.com. Let's take an omnibus journey with story. Let's take a journey with the wee bannock. Long ago in Scotland, in a wee cottage by a stream, there lived an old man and an old woman. They were rather poor, but still they were content enough, for they had a big fat cow who gave them sweet milk and a big brood of hens who gave them delicious brown eggs, and so they never went hungry. One day, the old woman decided to make some bannocks as a special treat. She stirred the oats and the buttermilk and the fruit. She rolled out the mixture and shaped it into two round bannocks and one wee bannock and put them all to bake in a pan on the stove. When the old man came in from milking the cow, he had worked up a great appetite, and as soon as he caught a whiff of the sweet-smelling bannocks, he grabbed one of the big ones straight from the pan and gobbled it up in one bite. At once, the old woman snatched the other big bannock, and she too gobbled it down in one gulp, for all that baking had sharpened her appetite. Now, when the wee bannock saw what had happened to the two big bannocks, he thought, I'm not going to let that happen to me. And he jumped down from the pan and rolled across the floor and out the door. Look, look, cried the old woman. That wee bannock is running away. Catch it, catch it. The pair of them chased the wee bannock down the garden path. But they were old and the bannock was nimble and fast as a fox. And as he scampered along, he cried out, I'm the wee bannock who sprang from a pan. Try and catch me if you can. The wee bannock ran and ran and ran until at last he came to the next house where a tailor and his wife lived. Look, look, cried the tailor, it's a wee bannock. It would make a fine dish for our supper, good wife, catch it. The tailor's wife threw a wooden spoon at the wee bannock, but she missed and it hit the tailor instead. The wee bannock laughed and laughed as he whirled round and round their feet and way out the door and on his way, crying... I'm the wee bannock who sprang from a pan. Try and catch me if you can. The wee bannock ran and ran and ran until he came to the next house where a woman was churning butter. A wee bannock, she said. That'll be just the thing to go with this butter. She put out her hand to try to catch him, but the bannock wiggled this way and that, running under her feet and almost tripping her up. Yeah, wee scallywag she shouted and threw her shoe at it but it missed and the wee bannock whirled out the door and down the road crying I'm the wee bannock who sprang from a pan try and catch me if you can the wee bannock ran and ran until he came to the mill where the miller was filling up sacks with flour well I never said the miller a wee bannock 
That's good luck, and it will be just fine with a mug of ale for my supper. He reached out to snatch the bannock, but the wee bannock was too quick for him, and he dodged under the sack and over the millstone. The miller threw his cap at him, but that wee bannock ducked and dodged and skedaddled out the door on his way, crying... I'm the wee bannock who sprang from a pan. Try and catch me if you can. It was growing dark now and the wee bannock was fair exhausted from all his exertions. He spotted a cosy dark burrow beneath the bushes and in he jumped and soon fell fast asleep. In the morning he was awoken by a mother bunny and her brood of baby bunnies. None of them had ever seen a bannock before and had no idea what to make of the strange wee creature in their midst. Who are you? demanded the mother bunny. Ah, I'm just a wee bannock. What's a bannock? all the baby bunnies piped up. I'm a playmate for bunnies, said the bannock, and he ran off crying. I'm the wee bannock who sprang from the pan. Try and catch me if you can. And that's just what those baby bunnies did all day long. They scampered and raced and chased, and by evening they were so exhausted they fell fast asleep after their supper. And so delighted was the mother bunny to have a playmate to keep her baby bunnies busy that she invited the wee bannock to make his home there with them safe in their cosy wee burrow. And that's just what he did. Let's take a journey with Inventor McGregor, written by Kathleen T. Pelly and published by Farrer, Strauss and Giro. Hector McGregor lived in a higgledy-piggledy house with a cheery wife, five children and a hen called Hattie. Mendit McGregor, everyone called him, because he could mend most anything that needed mending, they said, from fishing rods and fairy wands to top hats and rubber ducks. Day after day, people brought him their squeaky skates, squiggly spoons, wobbly wagons, tangled kites, knotted yo-yos, headless dolls and footless soldiers. With a blob of glue or a squirt of oil, with a tap of his hammer, or a shimmy here and a shimmy there, Hector MacGregor mended whatever needed mending and sent everyone on their way with a skip, a hop and a hum. In between his gluing and oiling and hammering, Hector MacGregor liked to stroll down the winding lane at the back of his house, where the bluebells grow and the smell of wet heather lingered long and sweet. There he sang a snippet of a song, or twirled a whirl of a fling, or sometimes he pulled out his palette and his easel to paint a picture. Then back to his mending he went with a heart that was both happy and full. And every night before the shades were drawn, Hector MacGregor nestled his fiddle beneath his chin and played a rousing reel or a sweeping strathspey, while all around the house, from pantry to parlour, his cheery wife, five children, and his hen called Hattie, whirled and whooshed and whooshed. 
Monday, Angus the postman stopped by to have his bag patched. That wee scoundrel of a Scotty down Loopy Lane has torn my bag to tatters again, he grumbled. Ah, oh, dear me, said Hector MacGregor. We need to stop that scallywag. Leave it to me, I'll think of something. The next day, Hector MacGregor handed Angus a shiny new bag covered with all sorts of buttons, dangling cords and flapping flaps. What's this? asked Angus. It's a barking bag, said Hector MacGregor. Whenever you see that Scotty, just push this button, flip this flap, and it'll set off a barking noise as loud as a hundred wolf hounds. With his new bag slung over his shoulder, Angus the postman went on his way. By the end of the day, the whole town had heard the story of how the barking bag had sent that Scotty fleeing with his tail between his legs. Now everyone wanted Hector MacGregor to concoct some thingamabob or thingamajig to make their world a little better or brighter. When Mrs Mackay complained about her boys who doddled and dilly-dallied all the way to school, Hector MacGregor invented a pair of detachable monkey tails so they could swing and swoop and swish through the treetops all the way to school. To lighten the children's school bags, Hector MacGregor invented a paper pump that blew up their books with helium. Now off to school they sauntered with their books, bobbing and dancing above them like a bunch of bobbing balloons. For Mrs MacIver, who had triplets and a husband at sea, Hector MacGregor pieced together some helping hands that she could strap to her shoulder. Every morning, with a flick of a switch, off it went, wiping noses, zipping zippers, tying laces and holding hands. For Jamie Campbell, who always slept through his alarm clock, Hector MacGregor invented an alarm bed that popped his head from the pillow like a jack from his box. And for wee Willie Beatty, the smallest boy in his class, Hector MacGregor cobbled a pair of bouncing boots so that he could see over walls and fences and heads. Inventor MacGregor! Everyone called him now, because he could invent most anything that needed inventing, they said. And in between his inventing, Hector MacGregor still strolled down the winding lane at the back of his house, where the bluebells grow and the smell of wet heather lingered long and sweet. There he sang his snippet of a song, painted his picture, or twirled a whirl of a fling. One day... The president of the Royal Society of Inventors, Nigel Withers, paid Hector MacGregor a visit. Congratulations, Mr MacGregor, he said. We are so impressed with all your inventions that we want you to become a member of our society. We want you to start working for us immediately in your very own laboratory in the city. Why, thank you, said Hector MacGregor, but I don't think I'll need a laboratory. You see, I like working here where I can sing and paint and... Oh, no, 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 protested Mr Withers. Real inventors don't have time for all that nonsense. They invent, that's all. Just imagine how many more gadgets and gizmos you'll be able to invent with a clear head and no distractions. Hector MacGregor scratched his chin. Hmm... He said, maybe you're right. And the next week, Hector MacGregor set off to work in the city in his very own laboratory. Mr Withers gave him a long white coat and a badge that read, Inventor MacGregor. Outside his door hung a sign with the words, Quiet, Inventor Inventing. 
All day, Hector McGregor sat at his desk in the laboratory, thinking about what to invent. He thought, and he thought, and he thought. So long did he think that by the time he arrived home at night, all his children were sound asleep in bed, and his cheery wife sat dozing by the fire with Hattie the hen in her lap. The next day was no different, nor the next, nor the one after that. Day after day, week after week, Hector McGregor sat at his desk in the laboratory, staring out the window at the toy shop across the street. He thought and he thought and he thought. But no matter how long or how hard he thought, no ideas came to him. Soon people stopped calling him Inventor McGregor. Whenever he walked on the street, the people whispered to one another, Shh, it's sad. A mistake. He's not a real inventor. Hector McGregor hung his head in shame. Whenever Mr. Withers popped his head around the door of the laboratory, Hector McGregor saw the frown in his eyes, and again he hung his head in shame. Oh, maybe I'm not a real inventor after all, he thought. Maybe I should give back my badge and my coat in my laboratory. But as he was thinking this thought, he noticed some painters painting the toy shop across the road. Suddenly, an urge tickled down his arms and into his fingertips. Up he bolted, out the door he flew, across the street he dashed. Quick, quick, he cried to the painters. I need to borrow your brushes and paint. Huh? Bewildered and befuddled, the men handed them over. Back to the laboratory raced Hector McGregor with the paint pots dangling from his arms. Clutching a paintbrush in each hand, he began to slosh and swish the paint across the laboratory walls. Splish! Splash! Splosh! First, he painted a picture of his cheery wife sitting beneath the plum tree at the side of his house. Next, he painted a picture of his five children paddling in the pond by the front gate. Finally, he painted a picture of his hen, Hattie, pecking her cotton at the bottom of the winding lane. Then he threw down his brushes and beamed at all the faces he loved, splashed across the wall. With a hoot and a holler, he dashed out the door and flew down the street. Where are you going? Mr. Withers called after him. Home, cried Hector McGregor. Home to my happy, happy home. Back at his higgledy-piggledy house, Hector McGregor kissed his cheery wife, his five children, and his hen called Hattie. He strolled on the winding lane at the back of his house, where the bluebells grew and the smell of wet heather lingered long and sweet. There he sang a snippet of a song, he twirled a whirl of a fling, and he painted a picture of a marmalade cat curled up in a patch of sunlight. Then back to his inventing he went with a heart that was happy and full. Week after week, one more incredible invention after another spilled out of him. Peppermint pencils, doggy wellingtons, jelly bean erasers, tartan grass, mufflers to warm noses, and books that glowed in the dark. Inventor McGregor, everyone called him again, because he could invent most anything that needed inventing, they said, just as long as... He could sing and paint and fiddle and fling and love all that he had to love. And every night before the shades were drawn, Inventor McGregor nestled his fiddle beneath his chin and he played a rousing reel or a sweeping Strathspey. While all around the house, from pantry to parlour, 
his cheery wife, five children, and his hen called Hattie, waddled and whooshed and whished. Now, let's take a journey with Cap O' Rushes, and this version was written by Flora Annie Steele. Once upon a time, a long, long while ago, when all the world was young and all sorts of strange things happened, there lived a very rich gentleman whose wife had died, leaving him three lovely daughters. They were the apple of his eye, and he loved them with all his heart. Now one day, he wanted to find out if they loved him in return. So he said to the eldest, How much do you love me, my dear? And she answered as pat as may be, As I love my life. Oh, very good, my dear, said he, and he gave her a kiss. Then he said to the second girl, How much do you love me, my dear? And she answered as swift as thought, Better than all the world beside. Good, he replied, and patted her on the cheek. Then he turned to the youngest, who was also the prettiest. And how much do you love me, my dearest? Now, the youngest daughter was not only pretty, she was clever. So she thought a moment. Then she said slowly, I love you as fresh meat loves salt. Now, when her father heard this, he was very angry because he really loved her more than the others. What? he said. If that is all you give me in return for all I've given you, out of my house you go. So there and then, he turned her out of the home where she had been born and bred and shut the door in her face. Not knowing where to go, the poor girl wandered on and on. She wandered on until she came to a big marsh where the reeds grew ever so tall and the rushes swayed in the wind like a field of corn. There she sat down and plaited some rushes to make herself an overall and then a cap to match. In this way, she hid her fine clothes as well as her beautiful golden hair that was all set with milk-white pearls. For she was a wise girl and thought that in such a desolate countryside perhaps some robber might fall in with her and try to rob her of her fine clothes and jewels. It took a long time to braid the dress and cap, and while she braided she sang a little song. Hide my hair, O cap o' rushes, hide my heart, O robe o' rushes. Sure my answer had no fault, I love him more than he loves salt. And the birds of the marsh listened and sang back to her. Capo rushes shed no tear. Robo rushes have no fear. 
With these words, a fault he'd find. Sure, your father must be blind. When her task was finished, the girl put on her robe of rushes, and it hid all her fine clothes. And she put on the cap, and it hid all her beautiful hair, so that she looked quite a common country girl. But the marsh birds flew away singing as they flew. Cap o' rushes, we can see. A robe o' rushes, what you be? Fair and clean, and fine and tidy. So you'll be whatever betide you. By this time, the girl was very, very hungry. So she wandered on, and she wandered on. But nary a cottage or a hamlet did she see till just at sunsetting, she came on a great house on the edge of the marsh. It had a fine front door to it, but mindful of her dress of rushes, she went round to the back, and there she saw a strapping fat scullion maid washing pots and pans with a very sulky face. So. Being a clever girl, she guessed what the maid was wanting, and she said, "If I may have a night's lodging, I will scrub the pots and pans for you." "Why, ears luck," replied the scullery maid, ever so pleased. Oh, "I was just wanting badly to go walking with my sweetheart. So, if you will do my work, you shall share my bed and." Have a bite of my supper. Only mind you, scrub the pots clean. Our cook will scold me. Now, next morning, the pots were scraped so clean that they looked like new, and the saucepans were polished like silver. And the cook said to the scullion, "Oh, clean these pots, not you! I'll swear." So the maid had no choice but to tell the truth. At once, the cook told the scullery maid to be on her way. For what use was she when this new girl was so much better? But the girl stood up to the cook, saying, "The maid was kind to me and gave me a night's lodging." She said, "So now I will stay without wage and do the dirty work for her." So Caparushes, for so they called her, since she would give no other name, stayed on and cleaned the pots and scraped the saucepans. Now it so happened that the son of the household came of age, and to celebrate the occasion, a ball was given to the neighbourhood, for the young man was a grand dancer and loved nothing so well as a night of dancing. It was a very fine party, and after supper was served, the servants were allowed to go and watch the festivities from the gallery of the ballroom. But Caporushes refused to go. For she also was a grand dancer, and she was afraid that when she heard the fiddles starting a merry jig, she might start dancing. So she excused herself by saying she was too tired with scraping pots and washing saucepans. And when the others went off, she crept up to her bed. But her bedroom door had been left open, and as she lay in her bed, she could hear the fiddlers fiddling away and the tramp of dancing feet. Then she upped and off with her cap and robe of rushes, and there she was, ever so fine and tidy. She was in the ballroom in a trice, joining in the jig, and none was more beautiful or better dressed than she. While as for her dancing, 
her master's son singled her out at once and with the finest of bows engaged her as his partner for the rest of the night. So she danced away to her heart's content while the whole room was agog trying to find out who the beautiful young stranger could be. But of course she gave them no clues and finally making some excuse slipped away before the ball finished. So when her fellow servants came to bed, there she was in hers, in her cap and robe of rushes, pretending to be fast asleep. Next morning, however, the maids could talk of nothing but the beautiful stranger. "'Yes, should have seen her,' they said. "'She was the loveliest young lady as ever, you see. Not a bit like the likes away.' Her golden hair was all silvered with pearls and her dress, oh, law, you wouldn't believe how she was dressed. Young master never took his eyes off her. Caparushes only smiled and said with a twinkle in her eye, I should like to see her, but I don't think I ever shall. Oh, yes, you will, they replied. For young master has ordered another ball tonight in hopes she will come to dance again. But that evening, Capo Rushes refused once more to go to the gallery, saying she was too tired with cleaning pots and scraping saucepans. And once more, when she heard the fiddlers fiddling, she said to herself, I must have one dance, just one with the young master. He dances so beautifully. For she felt certain he would dance with her. And sure enough, when she had upped and offed with her cap and robe of rushes, there he was at the door waiting for her to come, for he had determined to dance with no one else. So he took her by the hand, and they danced down the ballroom. It was a sight of all sights. Never were such dancers. So young, so handsome, so fine, and so merry. But once again, Caporushes kept to herself and just slipped away on some excuse in time so that when her fellow servants came to their beds, they found her in hers, pretending to be fast asleep. But her cheeks were all flushed and her breath came fast. So they said, She is dreaming. We hope her dreams are happy. But next morning, they were full of what she had missed. Never was such a beautiful young gentleman as young master. Never was such a beautiful young lady. Never was such beautiful dancing. And everyone else had stopped theirs to look on. And Caporushes, with a twinkle in her eyes, said, I should like to see her, but I'm sure I never shall. Oh, yes, they replied. If you come tonight, you're sure to see her, for young master has ordered another ball in hopes the beautiful stranger will come again. It's easy to say he is madly in love with her. Then Caparushes told herself she would not dance again, since it was not fit for a happy young master to be in love with his scullery maid. But alas, the moment she heard the fiddlers fiddling, she just upped and off with her rushes, and there she was, fine and tidy as ever. She didn't even have to brush her beautiful golden hair, and once again she was in the ballroom in a trice, dancing away with young master, who never took his eyes off her, and implored her to tell him who she was. But 
she only told him that she never, never, never would come to dance anymore, so that he must say goodbye. And he held her hand so fast that she had a job to get away, and lo and behold, his ring came off his finger, and as she ran up to her bed, there it was in her hand. She had just time to put on her cap and robe of rushes when her fellow servants came trooping in and found her awake. It was the noise you made coming upstairs. She made an excuse, but they said, Not way, it is the whole place that is in an uproar, searching for the beautiful stranger. Young master, he tried to detain her, but she slipped from him like an eel. But he declares he will find her, for if he doesn't, he will die of love of her. Then Caporushes laughed. Oh, young men don't die of love, says she. He will find someone else. But he didn't. He spent his whole time looking for his beautiful dancer. But go where he might and ask whom he would, he never heard anything about her. And day by day he grew thinner and thinner and paler and paler. Until at last he took to his bed. And the housekeeper came to the cook and said, Cook the nicest dinner you can cook, for young master is eating nothing. Then the cook prepared soups and jellies and creams and roast chicken and bread sauce, but the young man would have none of them. And Caporushes cleaned the pots and scraped the saucepans and said nothing. Then the housekeeper came crying and said to the cook, Prepare some gruel for young master. Perhaps he'd take that. If not, he will die for love of the beautiful dancer. If she could see him now, she would have pity on him. So the cook began to make the gruel, and Caporushes left, scraping saucepans, and watched her. Let me stir it, she said, while you fetch a cup from the pantry room. So Caporushes stirred the gruel, and what did she do? But slip young master's ring into it before the cook came back. Then the butler took the cup upstairs on a silver salver. But when the young master saw it, he waved it away, till the butler with tears begged him just to taste it. So the young master took a silver spoon and stirred the gruel, and he felt something hard at the bottom of the cup. And when he fished it up, lo, it was his own ring. Then he sat up in bed and said quite loud, "'Send for the cook!' And when she came, he asked her who made the gruel. I did, she said, for she was half pleased and half frightened. Then he looked at her all over and said, No, you didn't, you're too stout. Tell me who made it and you shan't be harmed. Then the cook began to cry. If you please, sir, I did make it, but but Caporushes stirred it. And who is Caporushes? asked the young man. If you please, sir... Caporushes is the scullion, whimpered the cook. Then the young man sighed and fell back on his pillow. Oh, send Caporushes here, he said in a faint voice, for he really was very near dying. And when Caporushes came, he just looked at her cap and her robe of rushes and turned his face to the wall. But he asked her in a weak little voice, Oh, from whom did you get that ring? Now when Caporushes saw the poor young man so weak and worn with love for her, her heart melted 
and she replied softly, From him that gave it to me, she said, and oft with her cap and robe of rushes, and there she was as fine and tidy as ever, with her beautiful golden hair all silvered over with pearls. And when the young man caught sight of her, he sat up in bed as strong as may be and drew her to him and gave her a great big kiss. So, of course, they were to be married, in spite of her being only a scullery maid, for she told no one who she was. Now everyone far and near was asked to the wedding. Amongst the invited guests was Cap O'Rush's father, who from grief at losing his favourite daughter had lost his sight and was very dull and miserable. However, as a friend of the family, he had to come to the young master's wedding. Now the marriage feast was to be the finest ever seen, but Cap O'Rush's went to her friend the cook and said, "'Dress every dish,' without one mite of salt. Oh, that'll be rare and nasty, replied the cook. But because she prided herself on having let Caporushes stir the gruel and so save the young master's life, she did as she was asked and dressed every dish for the wedding breakfast without one mite of salt. Now, when the company sat down to table, their faces were full of smiles and content, for all the dishes looked so nice and tasty. But no sooner had the guests begun to eat than their faces fell, for nothing can be tasty without salt. Then Caporush's blind father, whom his daughter had seated next to her, burst out crying. "'What is the matter?' she asked him. Then the old man sobbed. "'I had a daughter whom I loved dearly, dearly, "'and I asked her how much she loved me, "'and she replied, "'As fresh meat loves salt. "'And I was angry with her "'and turned her out of the house and home, "'for I thought she didn't love me at all.' But now I see she loved me best of all. And as he said the words, his eyes were opened, and there beside him was his daughter, lovelier than ever. And she gave him one hand, and her husband, the young master, the other. And she laughed, saying, I love you both, as fresh meat loves salt. And after that, they were all happy forevermore.
let's take an encore journey with this encore episode of The Tale of the Lanani Beast. There was once a young man who fell madly in love with a beautiful young girl. Every single day he would march over to her house and beg her to marry him. Now, this young girl would not say yes and she would not say no. Instead, she would say things like, Oh, you know, I'm feeling so thirsty for coconut water. How I would love to have some coconut water right now. And at once, the young man would jump up and say, You want coconut water? I will fetch you coconut water right now. Then off he would run to the coconut grove, climb a tree, cut a coconut, bring it back, slice off the top and present it to her. Here you are, a coconut for you. The next day, the young man would arrive at her house again. Please, will you marry me? The young girl would not say yes and she would not say no. You know, I am feeling so hungry for some fresh fish. How I would love some fresh fish for my supper tonight. You want fresh fish? I'll fetch you fresh fish right now. Then that young man would race to the stream. He would spear some fish, rush back and lay them in front of her. Here you are. Fresh fish for your supper tonight. Anything at all that girl could think of to ask, that young man would provide. But still, no matter how much he pleaded, she would not agree to marry him. One day, he asked her, Isn't there anything I could bring that would persuade you to marry me? I would bring you anything, anything at all. The girl got a faraway look in her eyes. Well, now that you mention it, there is one thing... But I'm sure you could never bring it to me. The tale of a Lanani beast. I have heard they are so beautiful, so silky, so rare. (gasps) Imagine how famous I would be if I owned such a tale. The young man gulped. The Lanani beasts live deep in the forest. The Lanani beasts crunch up humans for their dinner. Yes, I know. But any man who brought me the tale of a Lanani beast would be so brave, I would have to marry him. Now the young man was inspired. Now he knew how to win this girl. All he had to do was get the tale of a Lanani beast. And she would be his at last. He would go once, he decided. So that young man sharpened his knife and set off into the forest in search of the Lanani beasts. Now, the Lanani beasts lived in a grove deep, deep, deep into the forest. All day long they slept, but at dusk the Lanani beasts woke up and then they went a-hunting for bones to crunch, preferably human bones. Now, here is a secret about the Lananis that no one knows. The Lananis had learned that humans coveted their tails. So, to keep humans from sneaking up on them, the Lenani had developed a strange sleeping habit. While the Lenani slept, they would keep opening and closing their eyes. But they would really actually be sound asleep all the while, even when their eyes were wide open. And that's not all. While they slept, they would mutter under their breaths. When their eyes were closed, they would mutter... I'm asleep. When their eyes were open, they would mutter, I'm awake, I'm asleep, I'm awake, I'm asleep, I'm awake, I'm asleep, I'm awake. But really, they were sleeping soundly all the time. 
When the young men reached the grove of the Lanani beast, he saw them lying in mounds all over the ground. They seemed at first glance to be asleep, but when he ventured closer, he saw they were opening their eyes every few minutes and muttering, I'm asleep, I'm awake, I'm asleep, I'm awake, I'm asleep, I'm awake. They only sleep for a few seconds at a time, the young man thought. Hmm, how can I sneak in and cut off a Lanani tail? He sat down to watch them for a while. He watched them for a long while. And he noticed. When the Lanani opened their eyes, they never looked around. He noticed that when the Lanani said, I'm awake, they kept right on breathing deeply as if in sleep. I think these Lanani are really sleeping the whole time, he thought. I don't believe they wake up when they open their eyes. He had to have that tail. So he took the wrist and slowly, slowly, slowly he tip-tip-tip-toes over to the sleeping Lanani. He stepped over the first Lanani. I'm asleep, I'm awake, I'm asleep, I'm awake, I'm asleep, I'm awake. The Lanani did not move. Aha, thought the young man, I was right. They are all sound asleep. Now the young man tiptoes through the sleeping Lanani looking for the most beautiful tail. There, he spotted it. The tail of the chief Lanani. Long, sleek, silky. That was the tale for his true love. The young man pulled out his knife, and that knife was so sharp, so sharp, with one quick swish. He cut that tail right off. It was so quick, and the Nanani was sleeping so deeply that it didn't even wake up. I'm asleep, I'm awake, I'm asleep, I'm awake, I'm asleep. Ouch! I'm awake, I'm asleep, I'm awake. The young man tiptoed out of the pile of sleeping beasts. He began to run back through the forest with the tail. Now she will marry me, he said. Tonight she will be mine. But he still had a long way to travel to reach his village. Night began to fall. Back at the grove, the Lanani began to wake up. Wake up, Lanani, wake up. Time to go out and crunch some bones. The Lanani began to stretch and get up. The Lanani beast laying next to the chief sat up and he put his hand on the ground and he felt something wet and sticky. It was blood from the chief's tail, but what is this? He began to laugh. The chief has wet his bed. The chief has wet his bed. The chief sat up and scowled. What? He put his hands down on the ground. What? It is blood. My tail. Someone has cut off my tail. Only a human would do such a thing like this. Whoever this man is, today he becomes my enemy. The Lanani began to snuffle around the grove and soon they discovered a trail of blood leading into the forest. I go to fetch my tail and our supper, said the chief. He picked up a handful of straw grass and tied it into a magic knot. Holding the knot in front of him, he began to chant, You who became my enemy today, you who became my enemy today, no matter where you go, no matter where you hide, I will find you. Speak to me. And the magic knot of grass drew that young man's voice running down the forest path. And the young man felt himself suddenly answering. I, 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 his voice burst out. He could not stop it. I who became your enemy today, I who became your enemy today, I cut your tail. The magic knot made him say that. The young man began to call out. I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean to do it. The woman, the woman, the woman made me do it. Lanani stomped down the path after that young man, and the young man ran, ran, ran. Every little while, the Lanani would stop and call again. You who became my enemy today, you who became my enemy today, no matter where you go, no matter where you hide, I will find you. Speak to me. 
the young man would be forced to stop and call back, I who became your enemy today, I who became your enemy today, I cut your tail, oh, but I didn't want to do it, I didn't want to do it, the woman, the woman, the woman made me do it. The young man reached his village and he ran to that girl's house. Here, here is your Lanani tail, now will you marry me? She was impressed. The tail of a Lanani, how brave you must be, of course I will marry you. Then hide me, the Lanani is coming. The young girl covered him with her mats. He was completely out of sight. The Lanani entered the village. He looked around at all the houses. He is hiding in one of these huts, he said. He who became my enemy today, he who became my enemy today, no matter where you go, no matter where you hide, I will find you, speak to me. Under the mats, the young man felt his voice coming out of him. I who became your enemy today, I who became your enemy today, I cut your tail, oh no, I didn't mean to do it, I didn't mean to do it. The woman, the woman, the woman made me do it. The Lanani followed the sound of that voice. He pushed into that house and there sat the girl holding his tail. He didn't see the young man anywhere. You who became my enemy today, you who became my enemy today, no matter where you go, no matter where you hide, I will find you, speak to me. Under the mats, the young man hid both hands over his mouth, but it was no use. Still, his voice came out. I will decay your enemy today. I will decay your enemy today. I'll cut you tail, Lord. He leapt to his feet and he begged the Lanani. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. The woman, the woman, the woman made me do it. The Lanani stared at that girl. The woman? The woman? The woman made you do it? And he snatched his tail back from the girl and he turned to that young man. But the man, the man, the man is in charge of his own actions. He snatched that young man up and he threw him over his back and he marched out of that house, out of the village and into the forest. And that young man was never seen again. Now, in that village, they tell the young girls, if you love a young man, do not ask impossible things. Do not do that. And to the young men they say, if you love a young woman, no matter what she says, no matter what she asks, remember that the man is responsible for his own actions. Let's take a journey with the little sister of the giants. Once upon a time, there was a little girl who was very beautiful. Her eyes were like the eyes of the gazelle. Her hair hid in its soft waves the deep shadows of the night. Her smile was like the sunrise. Each year as she grew older, she grew also more and more beautiful. Her name was Angelita. The little girl's mother was dead and her father had married for a second time. The stepmother was a woman who was renowned in the city for her great beauty. As her little stepdaughter grew more and more lovely with each passing day, 
the stepmother became more and more jealous of the child. Each night she asked her husband, Who is more beautiful, your wife or your child? Now her husband was a wise man and knew all too well his wife's jealous disposition. And so he always responded, You, my wife, absolutely always you. But sadly, one day, the husband died, and the stepmother and the stepdaughter were left alone in the world. They both mourned his loss deeply. One day, as they were leaning over the balcony, two passers-by observed them, and one said to the other, do you notice those beautiful women in the balcony? The mother is beautiful, but the daughter is even far more beautiful. The stepmother had always been jealous of the daughter's loveliness, but now her jealousy was fanned into a burning flame. And of course, now her wise husband was no longer there to tell her that she was the most beautiful of all. The next day, the mother and daughter again leaned over the balcony. Two soldiers passed by, and one said to the other, Do you observe those two beautiful women in the balcony? The mother is beautiful. But the daughter is far more beautiful. The stepmother flew into a terrible rage. She now knew that it was true, as she had long feared. The girl was more beautiful than she. Her jealousy knew no bounds. She seized her stepdaughter roughly and shut her up in a little room in the attic. The little room in the attic had just one tiny window high up in the wall. The window was shut, but Angelita climbed up to open it in order to get a little air. The next afternoon, she grew weary of the confinement of the little room, so she dug a foothold in the wall where she could stand and look out of the window. Her stepmother was leaning over the balcony all alone when two travellers passed by and one said to the other, Do you observe the beautiful woman in the balcony? Yes, replied the other. She is a beautiful woman, but the little maid who has kept a prisoner in the attic is far more beautiful. The stepmother became desperate. She ordered the old servant to carry the girl into the jungle and kill her. Be sure that you bring back the tip of Angelita's tongue so that I may know that you have obeyed my order, she said. Angelita was very happy to be taken out of the little attic and set out for a walk with the old servant with a light heart. They walked through the city streets and out into the open country. Soon they had reached the deep jungle. Where are we going? the girl asked in surprise. We are taking a walk for our health, replied the old man. Soon they were so far in the jungle that the path was entirely overgrown. No ray of light penetrated through the deep foliage. Angelita became frightened. I'll not go another step if you do not tell me where you are taking me, she said 
as she stamped her little foot upon the ground. The old servant burst into tears and told Angelita all that her stepmother had commanded. I could not hurt one hair of your lovely head, much less cut off the tip of your little tongue, sobbed the old man. Angelita stood still and thought. Go back to my stepmother, she said to the old man. On the way, you will see plenty of dogs. Cut off the tip of a little dog's tongue and carry it home to my stepmother. So this is what the old servant did. The stepmother believed him and thought he had slain her stepdaughter according to her command. Angelita, in the meantime, wandered on and on through the jungle. The big snakes glided swiftly out of her path. The monkeys and the parrots chattered to keep her from being lonely. She wandered on and on until finally she came to an enormous palace. The front door was wide open. She went from room to room, but the palace was entirely deserted. There was not a neat, orderly room in the entire palace. I can make these lovely rooms neat and clean, said Angelita. They surely need someone to do it. She found a broom and went to work at once. Soon the whole palace was in order once more. Everything was clean and bright. Just as Angelita was finishing her task, she heard a great noise. She looked out of the door and there were three enormous giants entering the house. She had never dreamed that giants could be so big. She was frightened nearly to death and scrambled under a chair as fast as she could. When the giants came into the house, they were amazed to find everything in such splendid order. This is a different looking place from what we left, said the biggest giant. What dirty, disorderly giants we have been living here all by ourselves, said the middle-sized giant. I just realise it now that I see what our house looks like when it is neat and clean. What kind of fairy could have done all this work while we were away? Said the littlest giant, who was not little at all, but almost as big as his enormous brothers. The three giants fell to discussing the question. They could not guess how their house could have been made so clean. Their voices were so very kind, in spite of being so loud and heavy, that Angelita decided she'd dare come out from under the chair and let them see who had done the work for them. She quickly crawled out from her hiding place. What lovely fairy is this? asked the biggest giant, looking at her kindly. He thought that she really was a fairy. This is the loveliest fairy I ever saw in all my life, said the middle-sized giant. How does such a lovely fairy ever happen to find our dirty disorderly palace? asked the littlest giant, who was not little at all. Angelita told the three giants her story. Her beauty and her sweet ways completely entranced them. Please live with us always here in our palace in the jungle and be our little sister, said the biggest giant and the middle-sized giant and the littlest giant, speaking all at once. 
The three big deep voices all together made a noise like thunder. So Angelita came and lived in the palace with the three giants after that. And every day when they went out to hunt, she would take the broom and make the palace neat and clean. They called her Little Sister and loved her with all their big giant hearts. All was well until a little bird went and told Angelita's stepmother that she was alive and living in the depths of the jungle with the three giants. When the stepmother heard about it, she was so angry that she thought she could never be happy as long as Angelita was living in the world. She consulted a wicked witch as soon as she could find her shawl, and the wicked witch gave the stepmother some poisoned slippers. These will cause the immediate death of any person who puts them on, said the wicked witch. Then she showed the stepmother just how to reach the palace, where Angelita lived in the depths of the jungle with the three giants. Angelita's stepmother followed the directions which the witch had given her and easily found the giant's palace. Angelita was so happy living with the giants and keeping house for them that she had forgotten what fear was like. So she was not frightened at all when she heard someone clap hands before the door one day when the giants were away. She went to the door and though she was very much surprised to see her stepmother, she invited her into the house. The stepmother gave her a loving embrace and kissed her upon both cheeks. Oh dear child, it is a long time since I have seen you, she said. I have brought you a little gift to show you that I have not forgotten you. It is only a poor paltry little gift, but it is the best I could bring. Angelita was touched at her stepmother's gift and accepted it with hearty thanks. As soon as her stepmother had gone, she untied the red ribbon around the package and opened it. Inside was a pair of leather slippers. Angelita looked at the little slippers. They were like the slippers which her dear father had once brought home to her. How kind it was of my stepmother to bring these slippers to me, she said as she put them on. As soon as the slippers were on Angelita's feet, she fell dead. Just as the wicked witch had promised the stepmother she would do. Her stepmother was watching through the window. And when she saw Angelita fall to the ground, she hurried home in joy. Now, now I alone are the most beautiful woman in all the land. All the land. All the land. She said. When the three giants came home to dinner, they knew at once that something was wrong. There were dirty tracks on the floor and dirty fingerprints upon the door. Who made these dirty marks, said the biggest giant. What has happened to our dear little sister that she has not cleaned them away? Asked the middle-sized giant. I'm afraid there's something wrong with little sister, said the littlest giant, who was not little at all. They clapped their big hands before the door, but no smiling little sister ran to meet them. They entered the big hall of the palace with a bound, and there in the middle of the floor lay Angelita, 
just as she had fallen when she put on the poison slippers which her stepmother had given her. What evil has befallen our dear little sister? said the biggest giant. Who could have slain our little sister whom we loved so much? said the middle-sized giant. Who will keep house for us now that our dear little sister is dead? asked the littlest giant. Then the biggest giant and the middle-sized giant and the littlest giant all began to sob so loudly that it shook the earth. Our dear little sister is dead. What shall we do? The giants could not go into the city to give their little sister a proper burial, but they built a beautiful casket out of silver and carried it to the path which led to the city. Then they hid themselves to watch and make sure that someone found it to carry it to the burying place. After some time, a handsome prince passed by on horseback. He noticed the silver casket at once and opened it. The girl whose still form lay inside was the most beautiful maiden he had ever gazed upon. This dead girl is my own true love, he said, and he carried the silver casket home to his own palace. He commanded that no one should enter the room where he placed the silver casket. And this aroused the curiosity of his little sister at once, and at the very first opportunity she slipped into the room. She opened the casket and was surprised to see the beautiful, quiet girl. You are very lovely, she said to the still form. I'll accept your slippers. I think they are very ugly. And with these words, she pulled off the leather slippers. Angelita gave a deep sigh. Opened her beautiful eyes and asked for a drink of water. The little sister called the prince at once, and when he saw Angelita was really alive, he could hardly believe his good fortune. He asked that the wedding night be celebrated immediately. Angelita begged that she might go back into the deep jungle and invite the three giants to the wedding. The biggest giant, the middle-sized giant, and the littlest giant, who was not little at all, came to the wedding feast. After that, they visited their little sister often at her new home. And when she had children of her own, it was the funniest sight one ever saw to see the biggest giant hold the tiny babies upon his knee. And as for the wicked stepmother who was overcome with jealousy, she was never heard of and never seen of again.
Now let's take a journey with the story of Echo and Narcissus. In ancient times, in the land of Greece, whenever the god Zeus came to the mountains, the wood nymphs rushed to embrace him. They played with him in icy waterfalls and laughed with him in lush green glades. Now Zeus's wife Hera was very jealous and often she searched the mountainside trying to catch her husband with the nymphs but whenever Hera came close to finding Zeus a charming nymph named Echo stepped across her path. Echo chatted with Hera and kept her distracted until Zeus and the other nymphs managed to slip away. But after a while Hera discovered Echo's trickery and she flew into a terrible rage. Your tongue has made a fool of me, she shouted at Echo. Henceforth your voice will be more brief, my dear. You will always have the last word, but never the first. And so it happened from that day on, poor Echo could only repeat the last words of what others said. One day Echo spied a golden-haired youth hunting deer in the woods. The boy's name was Narcissus, and he was the most beautiful young man in the forest. All who looked upon him fell in love with him immediately. But he would have nothing to do with anyone, for he was very conceited. When Echo first laid eyes upon Narcissus, her heart burned like the flame of a torch. She secretly followed him through the woods, loving him more with each step. She got closer and closer, until finally Narcissus heard the leaves rustling. He whirled around and cried out, Who's here? From behind a tree, Echo repeated his last word. Narcissus looked about in wonder. Who are you? Come to me, he said. Narcissus searched the woods, but he could not find the nymph. Stop hiding! Let us meet, he shouted. Let us meet, Echo cried. Then she stepped from behind the tree and rushed to embrace Narcissus. But the youth panicked when the nymph flung her arms around his neck. He pushed her away and he shouted, Leave me alone, I'd rather die than let you love me. Love me, was all poor Echo could say as she watched Narcissus run from her through the woods. Love me, love me, love me. Humiliated and filled with sorrow, Echo wandered the mountains until she found a lonely cave to live in. Meanwhile, Narcissus hunted in the woods, tending only to himself. Until one day he discovered a hidden pool of water. The pool had a silvery smooth surface. No shepherds ever disturbed its waters. No goats or cattle, no birds or fallen leaves. Only the sun danced upon the still pond. Tired from hunting and eager to quench his thirst, Narcissus lay on his stomach and leaned over the water. But... When he looked at the glassy surface, he saw someone staring back at him. 
Narcissus was spellbound. Gazing up at him from the pool were eyes like twin stars, framed by hair as golden as Apollo's and cheeks as smooth as ivory. But when he leaned down and tried to kiss the perfect lips, he kissed only spring water. When he reached out and tried to embrace this vision of beauty, he found no one there. What love could be more cruel than this, he cried. When my lips kiss the beloved, they touch only water. When I reach for my beloved, I hold only water. Narcissus began to weep. When he wiped away his tears, the person in the water also wiped away tears. Oh no, sobbed Narcissus. I see the truth now, it is myself I weep for. I yearn for my own reflection. As Narcissus cried harder, the tears broke the glassy surface of the pool and caused his reflection to disappear. Come back, where did you go? the youth cried. I love you so much. At least stay and let me look upon you. Day after day, Narcissus stared at the water in love with his own reflection. He began to waste away from grief until one sad morning he felt himself dying. Goodbye, my love, he shouted to his reflection. Goodbye, my love, Echo cried to Narcissus from her cave deep in the woods. Then Narcissus took his last breath. After he died, the water nymphs and wood nymphs searched for his body. But all they found was a magnificently beautiful flower. Beside the hidden pool where the youth had once yearned for his own reflection, the flower had white petals and a yellow centre, and from that time on it was called Narcissus. And alas, poor Echo! Desolate after Narcissus's death, did not eat or sleep. As she lay forlornly in her cave, all her beauty faded away, and she became very thin until her voice was all that was left. Thereafter, the lonely voice of Echo was heard in the mountains, repeating the last words anyone said, anyone said, anyone said, anyone said, anyone said, I hope you enjoyed all of our stories for this month. And if you subscribe to our Patreon page, you can enjoy even more perks and resources. Here's to stories aplenty that fill our hearts with grace and goodness, hope and light, so that we remember, as my favourite poet says, All shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Be well, my friends, be well, and join me next time for Journey with Story.
Music and post-production was by Colette Jonas. <laughs>